You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. A miracle is a miracle. Why do we call them miracles? Because they don't happen very often. If they happened all the time, that would just be the way that the universe operated. It would be normal life. The very fact that a miracle is a miracle is because it's an astonishing event of some sort, of timing or whatever, that's very, very unusual. The thing about our, our grasp of the Bible is it can be very shallow. The Bible is mostly written by and written about people who were struggling, who were suffering. It's written by people who lived in slavery in Egypt. It's, lived by, it's written by people who were struggling through a desert. It's li- written by people who were overrun by the powerful super, uh, uh, the superpowers around them, the Babylonians and the Persians and it, the Greeks, etc. It's written by people who lived under the boot of the Romans. What I'm saying is that the normal state of all 66 books of our Bible is that they are authored by people who were used to abuse, used to struggle, used to suffering. One of the most famous psalms, of course, probably the most famous psalm, is Psalm 23. We sing it at funerals. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will put my trust in you. Finding out what I was asked to speak about how many minutes ago, um, I just looked this up from Paul, this follower of Jesus, to the church, the young infant kind of cell group that was meeting in the city of Rome that we call the Roman church. He, he simply he writes and he says this, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. If you read very much of Paul at all, you'll know this, that he spends his whole life being shipwrecked, thrown into prison, flogged, beaten up, chased out of towns. So he writes this, verse 31 of chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Then he goes on and he says, no one can condemn us. No one. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through through him who loved us. And I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything in the future can ever separate us from the love of God. Paul talks constantly about the struggle that he's in. We follow Jesus. We are Jesus followers who was crucified. Crucified. I don't mean crucified metaphorically, which is what we might feel when a friend lets us down or talks behind our back. He was literally crucified. His life was taken from him. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Paul was beheaded. In the end, he went to Rome and he was beheaded for his faith. 
So the whole idea that the Bible is about a rosy way of life where you believe in Jesus and everything's going to turn out wonderful and you win the lottery and you never get into trouble and you ne never pick up a speeding ticket and you never get ill and if you do get ill you go to the doctor instantly and you get cured and you will live forever is a fallacy. Indeed, um, it, 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 okay, indeed, I sometimes imagine to myself, I don't know if you do, that people who are desperate to cling to health and life here, you know, my, my friend, she's 88, she's, she's, she's got heart failure, and she's got cancer, and we're really praying for a breakthrough. Well, is that faith and trust or the very absence of faith and trust? in the fact that God is love and we believe that we are in his care forever. But miracles do happen, but they are unusual. Um, just two weeks or three weeks ago here, uh, Peter and David were here and they brought their friend Penny. Were some of you here? And, Pete, uh, and Peter and I the week before had prayed for Penny out there in the coffee shop. In fact, we'd stood and prayed together and cried because she'd been living in a hellhole of a council flat in Wandsworth that was rat infested and damp with mould on the wall. And she'd been there for a year and a half and the council had promised to move her and for a year nothing had happened happened and her health was deteriorating and Peter and Peter told me this story and without really knowing what words to pray because when you hear pain like that you don't do you I just put my arms around Peter who I love anyway and I cried not purposely for Penny, <coughs> for Penny who I know as well and I pray hello good that's my grandson hi <laughs> okay surviving so you're taking up precious minutes here. Uh, it's kind of, uh, and I, I cried and we prayed together. God, let there be a breakthrough this week. Even as I prayed the prayer, as I finished praying the prayer, I thought, well, that was a bit bold, wasn't it? I thought, How? you know, because it's... And on Tuesday, Peter rang me to tell me there had been that breakthrough and Penny came the next Sunday to talk to us about it. Now, is that a miracle? It's a miracle of timing. Perhaps that would have happened at some point, but it's an extraordinary thing. Um, one of uh, Cornelia and I, one of our children, Daniel, who's not here today, it's his birthday actually, so he's <coughs> gone out, <coughs> out for the day. Um, when he was a few months old, he grew a shadow on his lungs, and we went to see a doctor, uh, various doctors, etc., etc., and. Uh, they didn't know what this shadow on his lungs, both lungs, was. And then we went to Great Ormond Street, and they told us that he had to go in and that we should prepare ourselves for the worst. That's the way that they put it. Prepare yourself for the worst. He was really ill. And um, I prayed. I'm sure Cornelia prayed. We pr prayed together, and we got our friends to pray, and we got our church to pray. And Daniel spent, I can't remember now, whether it's a week or two weeks in the hospital there, and... The shadow went, and he's 39 today, and he's alive and well and healthy. That's an intervention. This church that we've been given, I came here in 2003, 
and it didn't look like this and there was nothing happening here very much. Kessa was here and she'd be able to tell you this. The, the building was shut for most of the time uh, through the week but there were a few people who had prayed and prayed and prayed. And together what we've been able to do is now this building's packed with on any day of the week. Well actually Sunday's the least used day of the week. It's packed with people. At least a thousand people are here on, on every, every day. And that's about the prayer and the mission of this church and the people that were in it, the few that were in it, and those that have come since, and the longing and hoping. We're going to be talking about that a bit later on. I've got a book deadline, and it's um, this Wednesday, Thursday, which I've got to hand in this book. It's called A Manifesto for Hope. It'll be a great hope for me if I actually finish it. And, uh, and I tell you, I reached this place, uh, uh, writing this thing, where, uh, you know, you've got the pressure coming down on you of the deadline, and as the pressure comes down, your mind goes blanker. Do you, do you, know, do you know that? Because you should write creatively in peace. But I always write in chaos of the whole of Oasis, and, every, you know, there's a thousand things going wrong every day around the country, and the phone calls and texts and all that. And I remember I sat in my, my little room that I use as a study, and I just sat there. Actually, I knelt down, and I, I said... God, I do not have any ideas about there was one particular part that would make it all work. I haven't got a clue how to navigate this. I need your help. And I swear to you, at that moment, this great idea came into my head. And I, sat, I got up and I wrote it and it created shape for the whole book. Are these miracles? Can they be explained in other ways? I believe that through life, your life, my life, if you look hard enough, there are all sorts of extraordinary things that bring us together. All sorts of extraordinary things that happen, but there's incredible pain as well. And that's the reality of the Bible. <laughs> Right, <laughs> there you go, that was 10 minutes. Um, we're going to stick some music on just for a couple of minutes. You've got hopefully pens and paper, so jot down your questions. What do you want to ask Steve? We're going to have 15 minutes of questions. Nate's going to come and collect them. Um, and then, yeah, we're going to fire those questions at Steve for 15 minutes. So go. Okay. Uh, right, I, I'll, um, I'll try to answer uh, some of these. There are too many to answer, but I'm trying to uh, choose the ones that, you know, um, that really do speak to something. Here's one to start with. It says, it's been said sometimes that the prayer was not answered because uh, one does not have enough faith. I think that's a really important thing to deal with. Um, God is love. It's nothing to do with you or me. I remember, I've got a cold now. You, by the way, you can't get my cold this morning. I've been asthmatic all my life um, since I was a kid. And what happens to me in the winter sometimes is I get a kind of um, wheezy asthmatic cough. And if I'm over, uh, overworked or tired, it kind of ends up turning into a chesty one like I've got now. And then I cough and splutter in fits and starts uh, till about um, the end of March. 
that happens every year. And then very kindly, some people normally come and give me glasses of water because I'm coughing and drinking cold water only makes me cough more. That's the, that's, the, that's the reality of it. Why do I tell you that? Because years and years ago, a big faith healer, uh, uh, well-known worldwide faith healer of the time, came to this country. And I was involved in an event where he came to speak. And uh, the, well, uh, the, actually, I tell you what it was, spring harvest. And uh, he was invited to speak at this, this, this thing. And he, he was, came in with an entourage. And... Um, I was set on this big stage in this huge big top and uh, in Minehead or Skegness or somewhere like that, can't remember where, and uh, around Easter time, and that is exactly when you are going to get asthma. Tell, uh, tell me, let me tell you, because it's damp, it's cold, it's by the sea, this wind blows through you. So, and I was there for three weeks because I used to have to do week after week of, uh, of, of running, running this thing. So I've got asthma, we're in the third week, and I can hardly put a sentence together without a little cough or whatever. And he comes on and he does this big thing, you know, this huge thing about healing. And um, anyway, at the end, some, some very charismatic people said to me, well, Steve, let's all, they're the leaders, let's all pray for you. <coughs> so they gather around me with this big healer and my asthma <laughs> like that, you know, kind of like, and they start praying and he starts praying and shaking and they're all praying for the end of my asthma, which I've had since I was a kid, you know, so, and I'm thinking, please God, let them keep going until I can hold it together without <laughs> coughing. And so, you know, and they finished and they said, how do you feel now? And I said, all right, all right, I got it, I got it. <coughs> and in that, I learned a great lesson. That, you know, God doesn't intervene in all those ways. At a more serious level, I had a friend, her name was Carol. She was dying of cancer. And, but she was in a church that believed that she wouldn't die. In fact, they believed it was a sin to even admit that she might die. And they organized a 24-7 prayer thing for her that went on for weeks. And, uh, and, and she... And everyone was told that even to believe or think or doubt would, would, you know, be a terrible thing. So the whole church had to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray for her healing. But I knew she was dying. I wasn't part of the church. And I used to go and see her. And I sat in her hospital ward with her. And she said, Steve, you know I'm dying. I know I'm dying. You're the only person on the planet I can talk to about it. I can't talk to my husband. I can't talk to my children. I can't talk to my friends. Because they're all in this cult of believing that if we all pray hard enough, something will happen. She died without being able to say goodbye to everyone. And then the whole church was plunged into, were our prayers big enough, strong enough? Did we use the right phraseology? If we'd have said amen more or in the name of Jesus, a bit bolder, it would have worked. None of this is about grace. All of it is about works, isn't it? Pray harder, pray right. God loves each one of us. But life is this extraordinary thing. Why have I got asthma? Do you know? Why have you got to sit there and listen to me hacking my way through this? Why doesn't God heal that? I've prayed. Well, I don't pray about it anymore. I just figure I've got asthma. But as a kid, I did. 
And it's a trivial thing, isn't it? I've prayed for so many people that I love who've died. I've prayed for so many people locked into debt and they can't get out of debt. If we, if we believe that prayer really could change the world just like that, why don't we all stay an extra hour, have a giant prayer meeting and pray for the end of all abuse of children across London? If we believe that prayer is that magic solution, why don't we do that? No, prayer is when we also work for a thing, graft for a thing. It's nothing to do with not having enough faith. The world is broken. The Bible promises us that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But until then, we will struggle. I'm sure I could say, or you could say, wiser things about it than uh, me. Is it sinful to ever feel anger towards God and to question why God doesn't do something? I am... Um, in the book I am writing, I tell a story. I may have told you some of this before. Years and years ago, as Oasis was developing, I went to um, Thailand. I went to Thailand to make a video because we used to run a project called Christmas Cracker uh, for restaurants. And Oh, I won't bore you with that. But I went to, uh, I went to go and make a video. And, and we were funding some projects in Bangkok. Oasis was funding them. But these people wanted to take me to a hospital and that was on the edge of Bangkok. And we went to this hospital. It was an old hospital uh, for, uh, that had been abandoned. Um, and it had, I, to my memory, it had about 500 beds. And, um, but it had been taken over as a children's home. It had smashed windows. And I went into the wards. The, the, the walls were filthy. The wards were filthy. And there were beds lined up in all those wards. But the kids were packed in there. If there were 500 beds, there were 1,500 children there. And they were laying across the beds three in a go. So they laid, you know, across the mattress. There'd be a baby. There would be a three-year-old. There'd be an eight-year-old. And they were just uh, left there. They had little or no human contact. Their heads, their, their haircuts happened because a, a nurse would come in and just shave their heads food arrived. I went into one ward and I saw this boy. He was sitting up and he was just rocking like that. You, have you, you've seen that, haven't you? I went over to him. Um, I was told not to touch anyone. I stroked his head and as I stroked him, slowly he stopped rocking. You know why people rock, don't you? It's to create rhythm, you know. Rhythm brings peace to you. You see, that's why we listen to rhythmic music uh, for meditation, etc., etc. That's why people chant, rhythm is good for you. It reminds you of your mother's womb, her heartbeat. That's the truth. So that's why people rock. But as I stroked him, he began to stop until there was peace. But then I was called and told we needed to leave. He had no language. He'd not developed. He was eight, uh, I guess, no verbal communication. Even if he had verbal communication, it would have been in a different language to the one I spoke. And as I made my way to the door and through the door and looked back, I began to see him rocking again. I sat 
in a Volkswagen camper van that we'd been driven out there by after that. And I asked God to kill me. Because I knew I could not go on living with the pain I'd seen. I was beyond angry. I was beyond anything. I was beyond any kind of systematic theological appraisal of what may or may not be happening. I just saw this agony and I didn't know what to do. If God is love, he can deal with my anger. He can deal with your anger. If God isn't love and doesn't care, I don't want to worship him anyway. Um, Churchill's, oh, Churchill's son, R Randolph, was holed up in the former Yugoslavia at the end of the Second World War in a cave with his, with his group of, 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 of men. They were struggling. And someone gave him a Bible to read. And he read his way through parts of the Old Testament and the plagues and all of that. And then his friend said to him, what do you think of it? And Randolph Churchill famously said, God is a shit. God's big enough to, to take all of our agony and our struggle on because God is love. I've got lovely little grandchildren you, you see with me. I love them. I can't tell you how much I love them. Is there anything about them that my love for them can't soak up? No. And I'm just a measly little guy. God is love. Um, did Jesus actually resurrect? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. I happen to believe, and I don't have time to go into detail about this, I've wrestled with that question endlessly. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is I have many friends who are Christians, who don't believe that Jesus physically resurrected. Um, they believe that his message resurrected uh, and lives on. And that's what inspires them to live the way they do. So I have huge respect for them. I could tell you some of their names, one or two of them you'd know. And that's what motivates them. What I believe is this. In the end, miracles do happen. These unusual things that we cannot, you know, what, why did I kneel and I get this idea from my book when I've been sitting there for weeks and weeks and weeks and not being able to put it together? Why did the shadow of my son's lungs <coughs> disappear, etc., etc.? Why did God break through in that moment for Penny? I don't know, but I do believe that these hugely miraculous things do happen and I do believe that Jesus was God incarnate Show, God, Jesus showing us what God is like so I believe that Jesus did physically resurrect and I do believe that we live in a universe of mystery and wonder and perhaps one day someone human race will be clever enough to know how the resurrection happened but we're in that 
tiny place at the moment, aren't we, where we don't understand our universe and we don't understand what's behind it. And we're slowly moving to a place where we're dumping the theory of the Big Bang that you all grew up with. And we're realising the Big Bang theory doesn't actually work anymore. And we're moving to a place of understanding multi-universes. And I had a conversation with Professor Brian Cox. Uh, we had dinner together a few years ago. And he, I asked him what the meaning of life was. And uh, he's written about this as well. Not about me, but about this. And he said, the meaning of life is love. Everything is connected in ways that we don't understand. A quark spins on one side of the states, you know, on the east coast, and, uh, and it's twin quark, because they come in twins, that it's been t taken apart from, begins spinning on the other side of the states, 4,000 miles away. These tiny, you know, these are subatomic particles, and you reverse the spin of one in a lab, in California and the spin reverses in the other sat in New York State. We had no idea about the universe we live in, but we live in it. Um, does science disprove God? No, when I was, when I was first, um, when I first left theological college, I went into endless universities and I had a talk that was constantly asked to give, how can you believe in God in an age of science? I tell you what, I can't even remember what I used to say now. No one ever asked that question. We have become a more spiritually open uh, community, haven't we? Uh, it, there's only 13 seconds to go. There are more questions that I haven't asked. Um, uh, answered, I, I, I mean, uh, forgive me for that, but I'd say this, why do miracles happen so, uh, can I just finish because I started, right, okay, um, Dick, I'm pointing to Dick because he asked, well, he said, uh, there, there did seem to be a lot of miracles in the New Testament, when did they diminish? I, I'd simply say again, I don't think there were more miracles in the New Testament than there are today. I really don't. I think the miracles in the New Testament were miracles, but there was pain and there was agony and there was frustration and the people lived in poverty and life was cheap. That's the reality. Read the New Testament. Actually read it. You find out life was tough and every now and then there was this extraordinary thing happening and that gets registered. And I believe if you begin to look around, you see, even in your own life, for all your struggles, if, if you begin to analyse it, I'm looking at Freeba, my friend over there, right? So, you know, uh, well, Freeba, right, can I tell you this? Just that, right, here's a miracle, right? Freeba, you can ask, Freeba, um, uh, Freeba, Freeba, uh, Freeba and I and some of you are connected in all sorts of ways. If you don't know Freeba, I haven't got time to explain that. But Freeba came to this country from Iran and uh, with nothing and struggled. And um, uh, she's here with her mum and her children. Her children are in the school here. And, but her dad couldn't come. A dad couldn't come, and no one out in Iran would let him out, and his mental health was really struck, falling apart, and therefore Freeba's mum's mental health was falling apart. Freeba was struggling as well because he was in, in Iran. And Melissa, who's part that, Freeba was telling me about this, and I, Melissa's part of this church, she's a lawyer, and I spoke to Melissa about it, and she said, I don't know what to do, but I know someone called Charlotte who lives in Italy. Why don't you talk to her? So 
I rang up Charlotte, who lived in Italy, right? And Charlotte, who's a lawyer, who works in this area, she just said to me, I'll do it, Steve, I'll do it. And she worked with Fariba for a whole year, a whole year, a whole year. And then against all of the uh, home office policies and advice and all that stuff they say about never letting anyone in, Fariba's dad came here. And it was a miracle. He's sometimes in church, you do that. Freeber's dad came here. And then there's this other miracle. This, that, you know, Freeber, um, she's a trained and qualified nurse, but she can't get a job as a trained and qualified nurse in this country because Iran won't send the papers. So she has to basically work as a cleaner in a hospital, you know, on the lowest band because her... her, her skills are not recognized officially and, and Iran just will not send the papers because we know about what Iran's like. And she got turned down for doing a degree course because, which would allow her to, and she got turned down by the university here in London because she didn't have the right papers. And so Freeber and I talked about it and we prayed about it and then I asked Jim, who sat nearly next to her, of Jane in the middle to help and do something about it and and last week week before Freeba got into the university <laughs> they are miracles but they're also struggles <laughs>